Amen. So this fall, they are going to release the cinematic version of what captivated a lot of people's attention for the last six or eight years. They're going to make a film out of that show called Downton Abbey. In case you're wondering. Now, I know it's not, forgive me, it's not everybody's cup of tea. I will be here all week. But it is, whether you like it or not, it is, why did it hold on? Why did it hang on? Because it, uh, it captivates our attention because it brings together two very different worlds under the same roof. It brings those who are served, the, the Granthams, and those who are servers, everybody who, who answers to the ring of a bell. And those worlds are in close proximity to one another, and how they work out those relationships and the dynamics it's just, it's just a captivating story, and that's why they went down to make it into a film. And one of the characters who uh, actually sort of bookends the entire uh, eight years, I think eight seasons, is a, is a, is a man named Mr. Bates. He was a, a military uh, man. He was wounded in the Boer War, and he comes uh, to apply and become the, becomes the valet of Lord Grantham, uh, Mr. Crawley, and his life... His manner, his demeanor is the quintessence of servanthood. He, is, he epitomizes everything. He, he demonstrates great distinction in the way he gives himself for the good of others, including the one to whom he is most accountable. He honors himself in service. And in that sense, he is the very image of servanthood. And the way they portray it is just remarkable. And there's no sense in which he thinks of himself with any less dignity than anyone else. But you do see in him a perfect commitment to his task. And I think whether you know anything about Downton Abbey and, and even less so about Mr. Bates' character, uh, there is something about him and the way he serves that really orients us to what we're going to look at this morning. We're listening to the stories of Jesus for the rest of our summer, if you're just joining us. The stories that he calls parables. And those parables are sometimes out to illumine, and at other times they're out to confront. Uh, they're out to frustrate even. Because how often is it that we are so stuck in a particular way and a story comes along that jars us in our seat? Jesus is really good about coming up with stories that will jar them in our seat. And the story that he's going to tell us today has something to do with servanthood But by way of preface, I might just say this. What he says may at first hearing sound like a very stern word. And yet what I would like to argue on the front end is that that stern word is just a firm word offered in love. And that he means to show us what servanthood looks like. For to live before the Lord is to think of oneself as his servant. But that requires a little unpacking, and surely he will do that. So we're going to look at the parable from three ways. In tight focus, in wider angle, and in living color. In tight focus, in wider angle, and in living color. It goes by fast. Don't blink. You'll miss it. We're in Luke chapter 17. If you're able to stand, would you stand to hear? Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping say to him, sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, recline a table. 
Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. This is the firm word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. These four verses, they, they come in a, in a larger section of Luke 17 that you might is arguing for what, is the, what does it look like to have faith? What is the life of faith? How does it split out? How do you, how do you know it? And in, in what comes just before that in verses 1 through 4, you hear that the life of faith is one where it requires a certain attention that you must pay to oneself, to your own heart, to your own life. You, faith requires that if you live before God. And it also invites you both to rebuke sin and to forgive it, even when it happens frequently. Speaking the truth in love sometimes means saying a hard word, but it also means that you're prepared not to offer condemnation, but the offer of mercy. That's the life of faith. Two verses before our passage, you hear Jesus speak of faith as that which can be expressed in even the smallest way. Faith, he says, as small as a mustard seed, and yet faith even at that size of that Stature has great potency and great power, and therefore don't, don't underestimate the demonstrations of small measures of faith. And then what comes after our passage, you will hear that the life of faith, he's telling it through an example of, of, of ten lepers who are healed and only one comes back, and that, that leper speaks unto Jesus with great gratitude and faith, and it just turns out that that one leper who had been healed is the one who's a Samaritan. In other words, the one least likely in any Jewish mind to demonstrate any faith or much less even be healed by God, that's the one that comes and says thank you. So the life of faith, it's many things. You pay attention to yourself. You rebuke. You forgive. You express it in the smallest flame that you might imagine, but you also express it through thanks. That's the life of faith. Here in our passage, Jesus is out to tell us that the life of faith before God is characterized by service. By a life of servanthood. And what he wants to do in this passage is demonstrate to us what is the character of that servanthood. Now, before I go any further, I need to do a little sidebar. Because the word there for servant in your passage is in other translations, which you may have in this room. It's translated as the word slave. It's the Greek word doulos. And it shows up in a variety of contexts, sometimes translated servant, sometimes translated slave, but in other places translated bond servant. If your translation says the word slave, it's very possible that you're thinking, wow, if I'm a slave, I'm like those who are in chattel slavery in mid-19th American, 19th century America. That's not the image you should conjure up when you hear me speak of servants or slaves. The best translation is the word bond servant. Bond servants were those who had essentially put themselves into another person's enslavement. They, they sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt or to recompense them for something. And it was not forever. It was not based on ethnicity. And it was not something that was lifelong. It was for a period. And so the, the category that we might have in our minds of indentured servitude, where you are fully committed unto this task, but you are really accountable and responsible to the one 
to whom you have sold yourself into slavery. That's what we're talking about here. I need to preface that because uh, you hear the word slave and you think, wow, what's wrong with this? Jesus is out to show us what is the character of servanthood. And therefore, what you should think of here is, is not so much like 12 Years a Slave, the movie. You should think more about Mr. Bates at Downton Abbey, the one who was fully committed to his master's goodwill. What Jesus wants to show us is about certain features of servanthood. And it doesn't go very long, and the list is not very long, but it is rather poignant. And the reason he has to do that is because anybody that wants to serve somebody else, you and I, are up against something, and that something is within ourselves. When it comes to submitting our will to another's will, serving them for their good, there are things that naturally surface and rise up in us. We feel it most dramatically at first when we're kids, and I'd like to say that we naturally mature out of these inclinations, but no. When it comes to serving somebody else, there's stuff that gets in the way. And I found three clips really short ones, that kind of capture some of that natural stuff that sort of froths to the surface whenever we're called upon to serve someone else. And don't worry, if you don't catch it while you're watching it, I will explain it. But here's a three brief scenes that speak to you about the challenges we face when somebody says, you need to serve someone. Ready? Here we go. Is everything all right, sir? Is the temperature in the room okay? It's okay. Do you know how the TV works? I'm 10 years old. TV's my life. Well, I'm sorry. And there's plenty more where that came from. Can we slow down? May I remind you that some of us are carrying over six dollars in change. Losing health units, must rest. Is everyone present unaccounted for? Not quite everyone. Who's behind? Mine. Hey, guys, why did the toys cross the road? Not now, Ham. Oh, I love riddles. Why? To get to the chicken on the other side. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, we tried. She and I were working on the cyanide system. Well, earlier today, it ate itself. But these little setbacks are sometimes just what we need to take a giant step forward. Right, Kent? Needless to say, I was a little despondent about the meltdown. But then, in the midst of my preparations for Harry Carey, it came to me. It is possible to synthesize excited bromide in an argon matrix. Yes, it's an eczema, frozen in its excited state. That's impossible. It's a chemical laser, but in solid, not gaseous form. Put simply, in deference to you, Kent, it's like lazing a stick of dynamite. As soon as we apply a field, we couple to a state that is radiatively coupled to the ground state. I figure we can extract at least 10 to the 21st photons per cubic centimeter, which will give one kilojoule per cubic centimeter at 600 nanometers, or one megajoule per liter. That's hotter than the sun. It's small. It's supposed to be small. Of course. Everything's going to be fine. Isn't it, Mitch? Yeah. This is a complete waste of time. Do me a favor, Kent, and uh, put the target in front of the cinder blocks, will you? Okay, Mr. Taylor. 
Anytime you're ready. Okay. Ready? Laser on. I did my part too. You graduate. You get the job. What? You can't. That's my job. I've done everything you ever asked me to. You can't do this. Look, look. I teach your classes for you. I, I, I get your laundry. What is he doing? Look, look. I, I mounted the optics for the phase conjugate target tracking system. Now look at this mirror. Look, look. I looked it up. All that physics talk, that's totally rot. He's making that stuff up. <laughs> what comes naturally to the surface when it comes to serving somebody is this immediate expectation of something getting something back. Right? That's what you see in the first scene. In the second scene, when it comes to serving another, they're out to go save their friend Woody, right? Buzz, whoever's in it, at Al's Toy Barn. They, they are out on a mission, right? And then when it starts to get hard, it's like, I'm out. Right? Serving another, you know, sometimes requires that we go into danger. And that last one, I know, is a long setup. But the two pictures there are the one with the funny hair, Val Kilmer, and then the other guy named Kent with the glasses. And what, what is he up to, especially when he discovers that all of his work for the sake of his professor was actually to no good end, and what he really wanted was the recognition that he was never going to get. When it comes to serving, when it comes to putting ourselves out there and extending ourselves in ways that are really important and require a lot of us, all of those things bubble up. And those through brief kind of jovial clips, kind of form a nice little foil for where Jesus is going in this passage. Jesus is out to tell us, with an alternative version of what service is, that a true servant's heart is, first of all, undeterred. It is unrelenting and it is not satisfied with its work until it is completed. The question that Jesus asks there in the first two verses, would be a question that those who would hear it would already know that Jesus knows the answer to his own question. It's, it's the kind of question where he knows or he expects them to do that. And, and so listen to him as he, as he says those, asks that question again and then, and then see these, these um, drawings by a, 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 an artist by the name of Eugene Bernand who did, who did charcoal drawings for every single one of the parables. And so listen as you see those texts. Jesus asks, will, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline a table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Those who listen know what Jesus' answer is to his own question. Because people know what it is if you're an indentured servant to a master. You do your work out in the field and you come in, if you think it's time for you to take a, a breather, have a smoke break because the master's going to say so, you're wrong. It would be more reasonable for you to realize that your work is still before you. The nature of the task, the nature of the role is to serve and therefore you're done when it's done. A servant's heart is one that is undeterred, it's undistracted, it's unrelenting in what it has to do before us. But this, but this servant's heart is not just undeterred, it's also unpresuming. Well, that's not a word we use very often. 
But you, but you hear it in what he says there in verse 9. Not only are you not to assume that you can just sort of uh, take a break or, or that your desires are more important than your master's, um, when it comes down to serving, you have to realize that you should not be presuming upon what he might say or do for you in the midst of your service. And therefore, he asks the second question that they would know the answer to before he asked it. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? The answer to everybody in that listening ear and that audience would be no, he wouldn't. He doesn't wait. Now, Jesus is not saying it's a bad thing to say thank you or to be said thanks to for your service, nor is it a problem to receive that affirmation with gratitude. None of that's a problem. Jesus is just saying that the heart of faith is service, and the heart of service is not triggered by or dependent on whatever affirmation or gratification you might get in the course of your work. Doing the work and completing the work is its own satisfaction. You don't need the recognition in order to persevere in it, to be fueled by it. That's getting to us a servant's heart. It is providing for us a manifesto of what it means to be a servant. And therefore, servanthood in a nutshell is one that is undeterred, unrelenting, and unpresuming, and not thinking of oneself. It's the nature of service. Look, um, if you're a kid, um, you have a hard time. Let's just be honest, because I was a kid once, and I wish I'd grown out of that, but I haven't. But when somebody asks me to do something, there may be a part of me at some point that's looking like, now, aren't you going to say thanks? And there's part of me that says, when do I get, like, you know, you, you go on, you go on, you start putting your, your back into it, and immediately, what are you thinking? Yeah, when am I going to get a break? Jesus is casting for us a vision of what it means to live before God as one who is a servant. And you know who reflects that really remarkably in just a few words? Neil Armstrong. If you missed it, 50 years ago there were men walking on the moon for the very first time. Oh yeah. And Neil Armstrong was the first guy to do it. Well, I found the interview that he did with Ed Bradley on 60 Minutes back in 2005 this week. And I want you to listen. It goes by fast, just like the clips, about his understanding of what it meant to be committed to his task. Listen to how he comports himself in the midst of his work. Armstrong was chosen to be an astronaut. He flew his first space mission in 1966 on Gemini 8 and nearly lost his life when his tiny capsule briefly spun out of control. He cheated death again two years later while flying an experimental device designed to simulate a lunar landing. When it malfunctioned, Armstrong was sitting at the controls. He ejected barely 100 feet from the ground. And if you didn't get out, that would have been your life. Um, yeah, probably would have. Yet somebody told me that after that happened, when it was all over, you went back to your office and sat down to do paperwork. That's true. I, I did. There was, there was work to be done. Wait a minute. You were just almost killed. <laughs> well, but I wasn't. Strolling around the Ohio farm where he was born, Armstrong is easy to talk to but hard to know. He can seem guarded, but above all, we were struck by his humility. You sometimes seem uncomfortable with your celebrity, that you'd rather not have all of this attention. No, I just don't deserve it. <laughs> but look, how many people have walked on the moon? Twelve? You were the first. You were chosen to do that. That's special. Yeah, I wasn't chosen to be first. I was just chosen to command that flight, 
circumstance put me in that particular role. That wasn't planned by anyone. Like he's visibly uncomfortable about even being said, you were chosen to run. And stop it, stop it, cut it out. He knows what his task is. He knows what's required of him. And even in the midst of the mishaps, he doesn't like flail on the ground saying, I'm out. Can I have three months off? And when it comes to being at the very center of everyone's collective attention, the whole world, and he's kind of like, I'd rather just move on. Like there was another moment in that interview where he, where he once asked um, somebody, when, when can I just go back to being a, um, a, a regular guy instead of a spaceman? He demonstrates a firm commitment, a devotion to what was ever entrusted to him, and he's not looking for recognition, and he's undeterred in his effort. That is a reflection of what it means to be a servant. He sees himself in the grand scheme of things as essentially insignificant compared to that which he is responsible for. And so I found a, uh, an image this week that I think captures that, that heart and even Neil Armstrong's character there. It's this one. It was, uh, that's the sun. If you haven't ever seen that before, that's the sun. Don't ever look like that. Don't ever look that way. But up in that upper right hand, left hand quadrant, there's this little thing. Uh, I sent it to Seamus and he goes, is that a bow tie? Not exactly. You zoom in and you discover that that is actually the shadow of the International Space Station traveling in the front of the sun, right? The space station is real. It has a certain significance and it has a purpose. But in comparison to that to which gives light and life to everything, it is essentially nothing. It's the heart of a servant. It's what Neil Armstrong embodies. It's the actually antithesis of everything that you saw in those three funny clips from the 1980s and 2000s. What I think, if you look at this parable in very tight focus, is out to tell us is this. The work of a servant will always be empowered by the worth of a master. The work of a servant will be fueled by and empowered by one's sense of the worth of the master. That's what this parable is out to tell us in tight focus. But uh, friends, I'm here to tell you, we have to see this parable in an even wider focus. And I'll tell you why. And I'll tell you even from Neil Armstrong's story and in his own words. There was a devotion that he gave to his work that we all look at and go, that's commendable. But there was a degree of devotion to his work that by his own admission, he said, I wished I had thought of something greater than even my work because he lost his marriage over it. And that's him talking, not anybody else. Not even his wife talking. What we're talking about here is a kind of a work ethic. And if you're not careful, you think I'm hearing that what I'm saying here is that you give yourself to that thing called the Protestant work ethic where you just sort of throw yourself entirely into one thing. That's your work. That's not what Jesus is saying. Be careful. And that's why we have to hear this parable in an even wider focus from a wider angle. What's the wider angle? Look, just to review, Jesus is saying the life of faith before God is a life of servanthood before him. And therefore, he uses the word servant, slave, whatever. Here's the deal. If you look elsewhere in the New Testament, there are moments where both Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul says that we are not slaves. What? Make up your mind. So let me give you an, 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 an illustration, even from the lips of Jesus. In John 15, Jesus says this to his disciples. 
No longer do I call you servants. Uh Uh-oh, that's the word doulos, same word. And he says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. Same word. But here he's saying, you're no longer servants. Uh, Jesus, which is it? Oh, but wait, it gets better. The Apostle Paul comes along, right? And in his, the, the letter that we have, the earliest letter we have of him, he writes to the church at Galatia. We went to, through that book um, a long time ago. And in that book, Jesus, uh, Paul says this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. What? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because your sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Same word, slave. Same word, doulos. But he's saying you're no longer a slave, you're a son. See, I knew the Bible was full of contradictions. I knew it. All right. Hold your horses, Richard. There's more to what Jesus is saying there and what Paul is saying in the sense that we're not talking about a contradiction here. We're talking about something more nuanced. When Jesus says that we're no longer slaves, but we're friends, what's the distinction he's actually making? A slave in that day would have no idea what his master was up to. He just shows up and he does what he's supposed to do. If you're in an entry-level position in a large corporation, you have no idea what the board of directors is doing. You have a task list. And you put your back into the corporate plow, if you will. You don't have a clue. But Jesus is saying, if you know me, if you have faith in me, you're no longer a slave in the sense that you don't know what your master is doing. You're a friend to me because I'm going to tell you everything. You are in the loop. It's not a contradiction. It's bringing two ideas together to help me see it in a proper focus. And when Paul says, you are no longer slaves but a son, what's the distinction he's making there? A slave, a servant of whatever sort, would have no share in what the master is up to, would have no share in the household that he was part of, would have no share in the inheritance that was set aside for those who were part of his family. But Jesus is saying, if you have faith in me, Paul is saying, if you have faith in Jesus, you've been adopted. You've been chosen not for your worth, not for your wealth, not for anything kind of you, but because of God's grace. And you've been adopted and legally fixed to his family. And therefore, when he says you're no longer a slave, but now you're a son, the real distinction he's making is what do you have a share in now, now that you're a son? You have a share in everything that's his. They're not contradictions. They're careful clarifications such that if I were to ask you, so which is it, Jesus? Are we slaves, are we friends, or are we sons? The answer is D, all of the above. We are a slave in terms of how we see our Father, who is the one who calls us to himself and calls us to lean into the plow, even when we don't feel like it. But we are also friends. We are also sons. And that's how you have to see this parable in a wider angle, because there's a wider angle to be reckoned with if you're going to understand this parable. But aside from you just having some of those interesting Bible facts, there is a bigger reason why you and I would want to know to see this parable in that wider angle. And here's where we get to the last part of the sermon and the last part of his parable, and that is, how do we see this parable in living color? 
there's two reasons why you and I need to see this parable, which is in tight focus, in a wider angle. One is an irreligious reason, and the other is a religious reason. And by irreligious, I don't mean immoral. I just mean someone who doesn't subscribe to the idea of God or any deity or any transcendence. There's an irreligious reason why you, if you fall into that category, need to hear this parable in that wider angle. I'll tell you why, and I'll tell you based upon the two astronauts that walked on the moon this week 50 years ago. I've already told you what Neil Armstrong said in that interview and in other places about how he wished he could go back in time and realize that there was more to his life than living for the space program or his career. And he lost something big as a consequence of that kind of devotion. Buzz Aldrin, the guy that went with him, the guy who upon landing on the moon, one of his first things, you know what he did? He had communion on the moon. He got approval from Deke Slayton, and he said, can I do this? And he says, yeah, just, you know, kind of keep it to yourself, kind of make it more general, don't freak out. Everybody in Apollo 8, when they read from Genesis at Christmas, freaked out. Madeline Murray O'Hare files a lawsuit. It was crazy. Aldrin gets on the surface of the moon, and what is the first, one of the first things he does? He has communion. And you can listen to the playback. And he reads from John chapter 15 as he has communion. First time, anything he's ever done on the moon. You know what Buzz Aldrin said later though? He gets home from walking on the moon and goes into a deep depression. And he burns through a number of wives. And he turns to alcohol. He's got wine on the moon and he turns to alcohol back on earth. Why? Because the moon was the thing he'd been living for for so long. And then once he'd walked on the moon, it's like, how do you top that? How do you top that? How do you live in the shadow of the dude that really did walk first on the moon? The moon was his everything. And when he lost the moon, he lost himself. And I tell you that story not to besmirch their character in your eyes, but to warn myself and us all that it is very possible that if God is not your God, if God is not the Son from whom you derive all sorts of light, you are liable to make something else your God, your master, and that master will cost you if you treat him like one. So there's an irreligious reason why you and I need to hear this parable in a wider angle. Because if you just think of yourself as a servant to your master and not as a friend or a son of God, you will make something else your God and it will cost you. That's the irreligious reason why we need to hear this in living color. Here's the religious reason. And it comes down to where Jesus lands this parable. In what you hear it and at first you go, ouch, ooh. Put that knife in the back a little bit harder, Jesus. What does he say in verse 10? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say this. We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. I don't know how you can hear that last verse without thinking that Jesus is saying the nature of faith is to persevere in your commitment unto him. I don't know how else you can hear that passage apart from thinking he really means it it when he says the life of a servant is undeterred, unrelenting, unremitting, and unpresuming. So how do you remember to persevere in that service without forgetting that you're also a friend and son of God? How do you make sure that you don't think of your work as something in a way that actually steals from you so much? Camp on that word unworthy for just a second. 
because that word does not mean what you think it means right now. People might think it means worthless. So there's that scene in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, where the, the priests are walking around in their Gregorian chant, and they're singing, Pie Jesu Domine, Veni Creator Spiritus, and they hit themselves with the Bible, right? Self-flagellation. We're worthless. Boom, right? That's it. That's where they are. We are worthless before you, Lord, right? That's not what Jesus means here by the word unworthy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a head-scratching term. It's only used in one other place in all of Scripture, But what Jesus means here in the parable is not that you're unworthy. It just means that you are owed nothing for your service. To be an unworthy servant is to see yourself as one to whom no merit is due for the service that you've been commanded to do. I I will bet that many of you in this room have at one time or another been the beneficiary of someone's kindness that you were ready to pay them. And they said, no payment necessary. I'm just doing what I do. That's the heart. There's nothing you can do to serve him, to merit anything from him. And that's why N.T. Wright says this about when it comes to working before the Lord. He says, we can never put God in our debt. And you might think, that's not good. I want him to be able to pay me back. No, no, actually, you, you, you would prefer it that way. Because if there's nothing I can do to put God in my debt, then I realize that what he wrought in eternity cannot be rescinded in time. That I am his, and he has come for me. And therefore, the way you and I both avoid making anything that is not a God into our God, and the way we're able to persevere in that service without forgetting that we're a friend or a son, the one thing that helps us is the gospel. Jesus is the one who said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And sure enough, he knows what it means to be conflicted in the midst of service. In that garden, he asked the Father, is there any other way? But you know what? Not my will, but yours be done. He knows about the challenges of walking in the footsteps of his Father. But he wasn't done until he was done. He was undeterred. And though the Lord would give him the name above all other names, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, for his service, that was a sacrifice. Jesus didn't do it for the name. He did it because his father was worthy and because we were needful of that devotion. By his choice, by his servanthood, he made us and made us into his family. Mr. Bates demonstrates service in Downton Abbey like nobody else did, but it's Tom Branson the driver, who's an Irishman, who works downstairs, who ends up marrying Lady Sybil. And he becomes part of the family. And he works downstairs, and he ends up being moved upstairs. Why? Because he'd become married into that family. Gentlemen, brothers, beloved, welcome guests, this is the gospel. Jesus, through his service, undeterred and unpresuming, made you his bride. And by making you his bride, made you part of his family. And therefore, when it comes to be a servant before him, we serve not so that we would become part of his family. We serve because we've already been made part of his family by his service. That's the gospel. What do you do with this? What are the works of God by which we serve him? Jesus said it pretty carefully in John chapter 7. When somebody asked him, what are the works of God? He said, the works of God are to believe in the one he has sent. 
where does our service to him begin? It begins by believing that Jesus was not simply an embellishment upon somebody's historical record. That he was not an idiot to himself, deluded by his own grandeur. And that on a third day following him being breathless, he was resuscitated and resurrected. That's where you start. I don't know what is before you today in terms of where you might be called upon to be a servant. I wouldn't doubt if there are moments in your service, whether it is a kid to a parent, a spouse to a spouse, a friend to another, a job, uh, an employee to an employer, that there are moments in which like, I'd chafe at that. Or you're more susceptible to turning that work into your God. Whatever the case may be, you have to look, and I have to look, to Jesus as the one who shows us what service is. And the way we can is by coming to this table. Because here is his servanthood embodied in the most picturesque and evocative form. God was his father. And because God was his father, he was about to step in to the hornet's nest. But on this day, he was going to share of himself with all those who were around him. He is the one who came to serve so that we might not serve in order to become part of his family, but because we know that we are.